0: Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is Episode 109, Bohemian Boston's Gay Grandpa. Hi, I'm Jake. Co-host Nikki had oral surgery yesterday, so you're going to be stuck with me this time. This week I'm talking about a classic Boston Brahmin. Prescott Townsend was born into Boston's elite in 1894. He graduated from Harvard and served in World War I. All signs pointed to a very conventional path through life, but Townsend's trajectory would take him far from the arc followed by his contemporaries from the Cabot, Lowell, or Adams families. Instead, Prescott Townsend would be active in radical theater, experimental architecture, and, surprisingly late in life, he would help found the American Gay Liberation Movement and lead the first Pride Parade in 1970. But before we talk about the surprising life and times of Prescott Townsend, It's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Crimson Letter, Harvard, Homosexuality, and the Shaping of the American Culture by Douglas Shand Tucci. We'll also reference it throughout this week's main story. Shand Tucci grew up in Dorchester, graduated from Harvard, and went on to become a prominent historian of Boston and Boston's architecture. His best-known work might be The Art of the Scandal, a biography of Isabella Stewart Gardner. But he also wrote books on the architecture of Harvard, a multi-volume biography of architect Ralph Adams Cram, and a study of Boston's architectural history, including a spirited defense of Boston's trademark, Triple Deckers. Published in 2003, the Crimson Letter delves into Harvard University's complex relationship with its LGBTQ students and faculty over the past 160 years. The work focuses on Harvard, but as the subtitle suggests, Harvard has an outsized influence on Boston, and especially during the last century, on American culture as a whole. The book opens with an 1860 conversation between Walt Whitman and Ralph Waldo Emerson about Emerson's misgivings about Leaves of Grass, and it follows a thread that stretches from Oscar Wilde through John Singer Sargent to Leonard Bernstein and Aaron Copeland. Publishers Weekly said, what Shantucci attempts here is nothing less than a reevaluation of American culture by looking at how it was shaped by Harvard-connected gay men. From Ralph Waldo Emerson, in love with fellow student Martin Gay, and Henry James, who apparently first had sex with Oliver Wendell Holmes, to poet Frank O'Hara and artist Edward Gorey, who were student roommates, Shantucci weaves together history, criticism, and gossip to show how many of the sons of Harvard were not only gay, but major culture mockers. In their review, the New York Times said, The Crimson Letter begins with letter burnings, flights by night, a witch hunt, a gay scandal in 1960. Shantucci presents homosexuality as Harvard's hidden history, and he moves from the personal and precise, almost confessional tone of his introduction to an account of the institution itself. But this institution is not only the university in Cambridge, for Harvard, whatever lens you look at it through, is above all an American story. Gay Harvard, for Shantucci, is the story of modern America. After I first started reading about Prescott Townsend's fascinating life, almost every article I turned up pointed back to Shantucci's book. Since the author was a lifetime resident of Boston, spending most of that time in the Back Bay, I had high hopes of interviewing him about his research on Mr. Townsend. Alas, I was too late. Douglas Shantucci passed away this April. We'll have links to his obituaries in the Boston Globe and the Dorchester Reporter, as well as a link for you to buy the Crimson Letter in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a free talk presented by the Massachusetts Historical Society that will actually be presented at the Radcliffe Institute in Cambridge. Historians, archivists, and public health professionals from Radcliffe, UMass, and Harvard Medical School will come together to speak on the topic of transgender history and archives, an interdisciplinary conversation. Here's the description from the MHS website. This panel aims to begin an interdisciplinary conversation in transgender history. What is the state of the field of transgender studies in history, archiving, and public health? How do changes in popular usage and attitudes about terminology facilitate or hinder research? In what ways does transgender studies intersect with women's and gender history and other feminist scholarly concerns? Now, unlike most of our upcoming events, this one comes with homework. In the event listing, there are recommended readings, so attendees can come prepared to participate in the conversation. While the readings are optional, registration is required. We'll have a link to the registration page in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. A year before Boston's Pride Parade was established, which we described in episode 83, The first gay pride parade in the world was held in New York City. A year after the LGBTQ patrons of the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street fought back against police oppression, thousands of supporters marched from Christopher Street to Central Park in the name of gay pride. Among the organizers who led the parade was a Bostonian who'd driven down for the day. By then, he was 76 years old, often dressed in old and tattered clothes, with a white beard halfway down his chest and unruly white hair. Despite appearances, this rumpled old man was one of the nascent movement's leaders. A biographer would write, I can think of no one more responsible for launching the gay rights gay liberation movement than Prescott Townsend. There were no demonstrations, no protest marches for gay rights before Prescott, and he was always on the spot for an organized protest. While he may have looked like an aging flower child by that point, or perhaps like a homeless person, Prescott Townsend was the ultimate Boston Brahmin. He could claim to be descended from 23 different Mayflower passengers, and his third great grandfather was Roger Sherman, who grew up in Newton and went on to represent Connecticut in the Second Continental Congress and eventually in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. Sherman signed the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Association, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. He was, as Townsend would observe dryly, the only man to be so inconsistent. By the time Kate and Edward Townsend welcomed baby Prescott into the world in Roxbury in 1894, their intertwined families were related to a veritable who's who of Boston historical figures, from Bunker Hill hero William Prescott to abolitionist Wendell Phillips. Young Prescott grew up in the family homes in Roxbury, Brookline, and the prestigious Back Bay, benefiting from the significant family fortune that only grew as his father's success as founder and president of a coal company increased. Townsend's father died when he was 15, and he began regularly seeing a Freudian psychiatrist. During roughly the same period, Prescott came to a realization about himself and his sexual identity. Two of the most significant sources we use, both The Crimson Letter and Charles Shively's book Before Stonewall, draw upon an unpublished manuscript by Townsend's authorized biographer, Adrian Cathcart. In The Crimson Letter, Shantucci quotes Cathcart's account of Townsend's awakening as a teenager when... As soon as he had realized that his physical affections were directed toward those of his own sex, he informed his parents, who were, he said, understanding, only warning him to be careful. The Townsend family placed a value on education, and seemed willing to pay handsomely for the best educational opportunities. Girls in the family were sent to Bryn Mawr, while boys were expected to go to Harvard. Prescott grew up in the age of Teddy Roosevelt, and T.R. cast a long shadow for a young man about to enroll at Harvard. Taking a cue from T.R., Townsend took what we might today call a gap year, as described by Charles Shively. Townsend early embraced paths untrodden. He came through Harvard when manliness was the norm and when bull moose Theodore Roosevelt was a hero. If T.R.'s Rough Riders inspired him, Prescott certainly deviated from T.R.'s ideal of what that might constitute. Like Roosevelt, he went west for adventure and in the summer of 1914 worked in the logging and mining camps of Idaho and Montana. Here he came in contact with the freewheeling industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, who were organizing unskilled and itinerant workers. Their anarchist politics left a strong imprint on the impressionable youth. He probably witnessed camp dances where the men got along without women and lived outside the norms of traditional society. At the very least, the lumber camps and the IWW gave Townsend a view of the world far beyond Harvard and Yankee Boston. After this gap year, Prescott entered Harvard in 1914 as a member of the class of 1918. A 2014 article in the Harvard Crimson looked back a century and compared the challenges that the incoming class of 2018 faced with those that the class of 1918 had overcome. It was easy to get in then. No personal essays required, just a series of entrance examinations. 73% of applicants were admitted. Admittedly, there are a lot of reasons to discount these numbers. The exams required special preparation available at only a few elite prep schools. There was no common app, no female students, and only 937 people applied. Along with his studies, Prescott Townsend pursued athletics, joining the tennis team as one of the school's top players. During his freshman year, he recalled having his first physical relationship with a man, a classmate and a fellow athlete, a polo player. This finally confirmed the sexual identity he'd suspected of himself for several years. He would tell an interviewer, I didn't ever feel guilty, but I was very frightened. This was, after all, an era in which being out of this gay would result in instant censure, likely expulsion, and the loss of all social standing. Despite this early exploration, Townsend didn't have much time to reflect on his evolving identity. As he told the same interviewer, Becoming involved in gay life was a slow process for me because I was so busy going out to dances with girls and working hard on my studies. My brothers before me had been very active with girls socially. Because of this, and because I was in the social register, I was always being drawn into things. Even more than sports or social obligations, Prescott Townsend's Harvard years seem to have been occupied with the preparation for what seemed like America's inevitable entry into the Great War that was already raging across Europe. As T.R. before him became Secretary of the Navy, and J.F.K. afterward joined the Navy, P.T. began training for service in the Navy. In 1916, he went on his first long training cruise with the Navy Reserve. According to an August 20th Boston Post report from Block Island, Townsend was among the volunteers who have been acting as petty officers for their division when 2,000 naval reservists invaded Block Island for a four-hour shore leave. The sailors made their visit memorable by monopolizing the Jitney buses, hiring all the beach ponies in sight, buying the entire available supply of cigarettes, eating up the ice cream in the village, congesting the bathing beach, and otherwise making a record for themselves in this unpretentious little summer resort. The article emphasized that the local women were more friendly than usual, because they knew the Boston contingent was made up of many Harvard men, including heirs to vast fortunes. It also stressed the less martial aspects of the crews. The night before their arrival on Block Island, Boston rowers from the USS Virginia and Kearsarge won a crew race. Then the next day, visiting parties from all the battleships came aboard the Virginia following the races to congratulate the crews and were entertained by the Virginia's band and an especially fine movie show. A feature of the show was a number of humorous sketches aboard ship of the civilian sailors. Following that cruise, Townsend enlisted in the Naval Reserve properly. Charles Shively expanded the service record listed in the Harvard Class of 1918's second annual report. In April 1917, he enrolled as Chief Bosun's mate in the U.S. Naval Reserve Force, was appointed ensign September 18th, and was assigned to the USS Illinois in the Atlantic Fleet. After a short time at sea, he transferred to New Orleans and then attended the Texas A&M Naval Unit to learn secret military codes. He was released from active duty January 25, 1919, shortly after the end of the war. Before his discharge, Harvard granted him a bachelor's degree. He would complete his four years in the reserves without being called up for active duty again. With a degree from Harvard in hand and his time in the Navy at a close, Townsend enrolled at Harvard Law School but dropped out before the first year was over. Instead, he joined the Harvard Travelers Club, which Chantucci describes as composed of those with the inclination and means to go adventuring in exotic locales. The farther from home, the better. Charles Shively recounts how widely traveled Townsend was at this time. As a member of the Harvard Travelers Club, Prescott made several memorable trips, one into North Africa and another into communist Russia. The free life of the Bedouins attracted him as it had so many gay men. One of Prescott's prized possessions was a jellaba, which is a form of long-flowing robe traditionally worn by Arab men, which he claimed Lawrence of Arabia had given to Andre Geed, who had in turn gave it to him. Since the garment, along with many other prized manuscripts and mementos, was lost in one of his several disastrous fires, DNA tests can never be run to see whether either Geed or Lawrence once wore it. Nonetheless, the existence of the garment and Townsend's attachment to it, similar to that of Christians to their relics, demonstrates how highly he regarded the homosexuality of the Bedouins, his connection with Geed, and fantasies of Lawrence in the Arabian Sands. Shantucci picks up the same thread. Lawrence of Arabia was probably very much in Townsend's mind that year in North Africa, as he outfitted his mini-caravan of camels and camping gear with a whole retinue of youths as guides, cooks, and whatever. Willing for both work and pleasure, one assumes. How many gays with the means? Lawrence was not the only one, John Singer Sargent was another, found in this era both adventure and solace in distant and exotic locales. Indeed, some of Townsend's experiences on this expedition were akin to Lawrence's own. He dined out for years on how, at the height of the Rift Rebellion in 1922, determined to make his way and not be bogged down in a war zone he had nonchalantly braved a brisk exchange of rifle fire between the forces of Abd al-Karim and the Foreign Legion, reducing the startled combatants to an uneasy truce while he passed through, grandly announcing that he was an American citizen and as such entitled to safe passage. Speaking of world travel, in an article in the Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington, E.R. Dunn describes a new species of salamander that he and his companion discovered. In 1921, they were on an expedition to the rainforests near Jalapa along the Rio Blanco in the Mexican state of Veracruz. In honor of his co-discoverer, Dunn named the tiny amphibian Salamandra Oedipus Townsendentus. In the 1920s, Prescott Townsend was simply traveling everywhere and doing everything, including two extended stays in Paris. Later, he would claim to have been deeply involved in the American expat community there, alongside celebrities like F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, Pablo Picasso, and T.E. Lawrence, who we know better as Lawrence of Arabia. Later authors question whether he was ever welcome in the inner circle of this movable feast, but there's certainly evidence that he was traveling in its outer orbit. He became close friends with the Nobel Prize-winning, anti-colonialist writer Andre Gide, who we mentioned before. Geed was unique at the time for being openly gay, having come out in print in the mid-1920s. He would act as a mentor to Townsend, as the much younger man explored the original Bohemia to be found in the left bank. At about the same time, he met the writer Elliot Paul, who turned out to be a native of Malden. and The two fell into an on-again-off-again romantic relationship that would last for years. In the mid-1920s, Prescott Townsend moved back to Boston perhaps to be close to his mother, as she slowly succumbed to terminal cancer. Elliot Paul came with him, and the two men seemed to have been determined to recreate some sliver of the modern, daring, electrifying Paris scene they had left behind. Through their work, and that of a handful of other early Boston Bohemians, they managed to create the world they were looking for on the unfashionable north slope of Beacon Hill. Charles Shively introduces the scene and uses some dated language that we apologize for. The back of Beacon Hill, where Prescott lived most of his adult life, approximated New York's Greenwich Village and, in some ways, even the left bank in Paris. Before, during, and after Prohibition, the bars on the back of the hill catered to a miscellaneous crowd of sailors, transvestites, poets, prostitutes, and gay men. For a time during the 1920s, Townsend participated in a speakeasy, eatery, and theatrical establishment on Joy Street in what was formerly a stable, one of several buildings he owned on Beacon Hill. A network of so-called tea rooms—actually, speakeasies where gin and vermouth were discreetly served in teacups—filled the tiny alleys of Beacon Hill, anchored by the up-and-coming institution founded on Paul's taste and Townsend's inheritance. Shantucci describes how, Townsend himself, meanwhile, in an old brick house he owned at 75 Phillips Street, opened what was, one may be sure, one of the livelier of the new tea rooms, the Jolly Roger and an adjoining ground-floor bookshop named for Paul Revere, of all people. Townsend was ever the patriot. It was adorned with piratical murals. Perhaps the joke was that the pirates were gay enough. Certainly, Townsend is known in these years to have been a member of a Cornhill Poetry Reading Club, or Arts Club, or a Gay Bar. No one seemed sure even then what it really was. If it was a gay bar, it was one of Boston's first, called Pen and Pencil. Café chronicler Lucius Beebe described the wild scene. There were hints of even more exotic practices, and prominent Bohemians were apprehended in raids on Negro nightclubs in the South End. The studios of Myrtle and Mount Vernon Streets on Beacon Hill were subjected to frequent raids by embattled officers, who visioned counterfeiting, cocaine vending, and worse, wherever a Bayberry candle glimmered in the neck of a discarded whiskey bottle. Usually, however they discovered nothing worse than a temporarily decommissioned playwright or Harvard Latin instructor under the bed. In Prescott Townsend's former stable on Joy Street, he and Elliot Paul established a new playhouse in 1922, called the Barn Theater. It was inspired by the small experimental theaters the pair had seen in Paris, and in no small part, by the Provincetown Wharf Theater that had been founded in 1915. Without citing sources, Beebe claims that these improvements were made possible by Expeditions for Purposes of Lust and Pillage, during which Paul and Townsend liberated building materials from quarries and lumberyards. For one heist, quote, Elliot Paul put in an appearance with a thousand of red-glazed brick. At another, Townsend dragged into admiring Joy Street behind his car the main steel strut of the Court Theater, then in the process of demolition. Victims of these expeditions complained that their stock, quote, vanished down the road in the hands of persons they usually described to the police as having donned fancy dress for the purposes of disguise. Beeb's description of Townsend at that time leaves little question as to who preferred fancy dress. Paul's constant associate was a rangy youth named Prescott Townsend, whose strictly accountable background and actual supply of ready cash were not particularly held against him, even in the most enlightened circles. Townsend emerged from Harvard Law School. Possessed and wore a raccoon-skin overcoat that was the envy of Cedar Street and could talk informatively on any given subject for the space it required his auditor to consume precisely a quart of gin. Within a very short time, the Joy Street compound had grown and evolved into an artist's colony in its own right. A 1925 advertising flyer for 36 Joy Street promoted, among other endeavors, the Barn Bookshop, Sally White's Costumes a Victorian-inspired interior decorator, a basket maker, a ballet instructor, unusual photography, and wrought iron by Prescott Townsend. Entertainments included The Brick Oven, a gift shop and tea room operated by Miss Jordan, The Saracens Head Coffee House with lunch and dinner served daily and chicken and waffles every Thursday, and of course, The Boston Stage Society, a small theater producing six plays from November to May, eight evenings a month. Admission was by membership only. Despite its higgledy-piggledy construction and somewhat shady origins, the Barn Experimental Theater went on to make a significant contribution to the city's artistic history. Douglas Shantucci describes how, after the first season's opener, the Barn produced shows by a series of modernist playwrights whose work the Barn Theater specialized in. Others included Anton Chekhov, August Strindberg, Jean Cocteau, Gordon Bottomley, Andre Guide, another memory of North Africa, and Alexander Bloch. It is a very avant-garde list that marks the Barn Company as perhaps the best and purest theater, amateur but dedicated and pioneering. Indeed, several plays were advertised as given for the first time in English, and at least two for the first time in this country. And although it was, in the trustees' words, a non-commercial effort to establish a theater in Boston in which we can experiment in new dramatic forms and subjects, such as are available in New York at the Provincetown Theater, and entirely amateur, standards were high. The Barnes Productions were linked to the 47 workshop of Professor Baker at Harvard, referring to that professor's nationally important course on playwriting. Poet Robert Hillier, who lived in a muse of Charles Street on Beacon Hill, and who had just been appointed to Harvard's English faculty, was also involved. Set design, moreover, was often a project of a class in that subject at the Vesper George School of Art, or the School of Boston's MFA. Even The New Yorker noticed, reporting in 1926, that sophisticated Bostonians may often be seen sitting on long wooden benches watching performances of Strindberg with Expressionist settings, Anatole France, Chekhov, and the more modern works of Marcel Lachard, Alexander Bloch, and Jean Cocteau. In any event, simply by opening, much less sustaining, the Barn Experimental Theater, Townsend and Paul had achieved much. After taking inspiration from the Provincetown Theater for the barn, Prescott Townsend was soon taking inspiration from Provincetown itself. He began summering there sometime in the 1920s and spent an increasing amount of time on the far tip of the Cape after the Barn Theater closed up shop in 1929. During his many years there, his interests turned from theater, which he supported with more of his trust fund and less of his time, to architecture. Shively describes how he got started. Townsend's greatest work, beyond his extraordinary personality and public agitation for gay causes, was in his architectural experiments both on Beacon Hill and in Provincetown. He built five A-frame houses in Provincetown. Had he patented his A-frame, he might have become better known. As he became established in P-Town, he began assembling a compound he called Provincetownsend at 1 Bradford Street. If I read the map correctly, it's the site of a playground today. His designs used found materials like driftwood, bubbled plastic sheeting, and ship parts to reflect his idea of what p felt like. The entryway to his own home, called the Gangway, was made from a ship's actual gangway. Adjacent to it was a large wing with a dormitory accessed by a ship's ladder. Here, he sheltered young runaways, gay, straight, and otherwise, many of whom had nowhere else to go. On his blog called Building Provincetown, the history of Provincetown told through its built environment, David W. Dunlap describes how one of the young runaways who found his way to Province Townsend went on to become the world-famous director of Pink Flamingos, Hairspray, and Crybaby. In the summer of 1967, this teeming bohemian cohort included 21-year-old John Waters and 20-year-old Nancy Stoll of Baltimore, soon to become much better known as Mink Stoll, a name Waters gave to her. She was briefly engaged to Townsend. Also dwelling in Townsend's tree fort were Nancy's sister Seek and Alan Dahl. It was like living with a lunatic Swiss family Robinson, Waters wrote in shock value. Part of the apartment was made out of a submarine, and trees grew right up through the living room. The only real problem was that when it rained, it was like being outside. There was no rent. You just had to be liked by the incredibly eccentric landlord. No matter. Waters recalled in an interview with Gerald Peary for Provincetown Arts, I can remember it as some of the happiest moments of my life, of complete freedom for the first time. I was away from everything I rebelled against. The sad final chapters of Townsend's life began as his years in Provincetown came to an end. The environment of complete freedom that he cultivated at Provincetownsend may have rubbed the old Yankee townies the wrong way. After a fire burned the entire compound to the ground in 1968, Charles Shively reported that, Some believe that his house was torched deliberately. This was because shortly before the fire, three of the selectmen of Provincetown had issued an appeal to all decent people, complaining that we are not getting the support we should in an effort to rid our town of these degenerates. The appeal concluded with the call, let us not permit our town to become a Sodom or Gomorrah. After the fire, Townsend retreated to Beacon Hill, where he owned two properties. A house on Phillips Street was the last remnant of the Barn Theater complex, and an apartment building on Lindell Place, which is unvaryingly described as filthy, labyrinthine, and completely debauched. As he entered old age in the Phillips Street house, his tenants on Lindell Place included a motley assortment of artists, junkies, and aging domestic servants who had worked for his family, who he now supported in their old age. It's unclear how many, if any, actually paid him any rent. In 1971, first one house, then the other burned. Lindell Place went up after a chimney fire, and only the brick walls could be saved. A few months later, Phillips Street burned as Prescott Townsend, in his late 70s, stood outside in his pajamas on a winter's night and gawked at the flames. With his once-considerable resources nearly depleted, he moved in with a friend. On May 18, 1973, the friend found Townsend's body. He was kneeling next to his bed as if in prayer, in a dirt-floored basement apartment on Beacon Hills Garden Street. He was 79 years old. Before that final decline, however, Prescott Townsend lived through an incredible third act in his life. Having been involved in the theater and in architecture, he now found himself drawn to political activism. His 45th Harvard-class report from 1963 said, The third and last phase of my life has been the fight for social justice. This has also been the most fun. The Demophile Center is one of the three newer organizations in the United States dedicated to bringing the problems of the homophile to the attention of the public and aiding in their solution. I do this by my forensic and scriptural abilities, by my leadership at the Demophile, and also by membership in the International Society. Townsend's political activism actually had its first awakenings decades before, as Mark Crone recounts in Boston Spirit magazine. During the 1930s, Townsend entered history by testifying at the State House for a gay rights bill. As a Brahmin, he was politely received, but swiftly dismissed. He was back the next year and the next after that, meeting with the same polite indifference. His money and status had often protected Prescott Townsend from the worst forms of oppression that society had to offer gay men at that time. However, a decade after his testimony was indulged on Beacon Hill, Townsend got a full helping of the treatment that non-elites faced, and it galvanized him to action. In 1943, the 25th report for the class of 1918 noted that Prescott Townsend had not returned the annual questionnaire, but in his most recent communication, he described himself as an experimental architect. Two decades later, Townsend would more bluntly describe why he'd been out of touch in 1943. The 1963 Harvard Class Report says, I was thrown into jail for refusing to pay $15 in graft for an act that is not against the law in England nor in Illinois. A headline in the Midtown Journal reported, Beacon Hill Twilight Man, member of queer love cult, seduced young man. Douglas Shantucci did his best to peel back the layers of rumor and cover-up to describe what had happened. The precipitant of this third and final phase of Townsend's improbable life story? In 1943, he was caught having sex. Rumor always had it that it was in one of those deep entryways on Beacon Hill's historic Mount Vernon Street. Someone opened his door and presumably called the police. And this fiercely honest Boston Brahmin queer of bohemian fame, having long since discarded his parents' advice to be careful, was not about to back down. Townsend's defining moment had come, and though the police captain was open to a modest bribe, Townsend, though certainly savvy enough to have paid off the cops in the days of his tea rooms, was in a matter of this sort determined to stand on principle. So he went to jail. Unfortunately... Massachusetts law at that time treated any act of homosexuality as an abominable and detestable crime against nature. Prescott Townsend was sentenced to 18 months at hard labor in the state penitentiary on Deer Island. Perhaps all the sunshine and exercise reminded Prescott of his years in the Navy, or even the time he spent cutting timber out west, because by all reports he served his sentence in remarkably good spirits, finding immense amusement in the fact that his imprisonment had finally gotten him kicked out of the social register. Soon, his sentence was up. And, as Mark Crone recounts, as it turned out, he was released on VJ Day. He said later, when he saw the celebrations in town, he thought they were for him. Townsend had never been in the closet by any measure, but after 1943, he began to seek out ways to push harder and more publicly for the cause of gay rights. Soon after the Mattachine Society was founded in L.A. in 1951 as the first service and welfare organization devoted to the protection and improvement of society's androgynous minority, Townsend jumped in with both feet. By 1953, he was among the group's leadership, attending a steering meeting in Los Angeles, where the decision was made to decentralize the organization, creating regional chapters. The first East Coast chapters were New York's in 1956, and Boston's in 1957. Prescott Townsend was the motivating force behind the Boston chapter, and his in-your-face confrontational style soon opened a rift with the parent organization, as Charles Shively describes. The division between what in Boston has often been called the good gays and the bad faggots carried over into the Mattachine Society in 1957. Prescott organized the first chapter in Boston, and he also attended meetings of ECHO, the East Coast Homophile Organization. As the Boston group grew, with larger meetings, newsletters, and prominent speakers, the good gays soon voted Prescott out of leadership. Pushed aside, he then left to organize his own Boston Demophile Society. It should be mentioned that both homophile and demophile were early words for homosexuality, though demophile was considered more accepting of a broad range of sexual identities. As we already alluded the Demophile Society became Townsend's passion project. In 1959, just two years after breaking from the Mattachine, he wrote to that organization with a proposal to introduce sodomy law reform in Massachusetts. The Mattachine Society's response illustrates the break between their gradualist approach and his radical one. Let me say that I feel it is still too early in the history of the Mattachine to sponsor a bill in a state legislature concerning a change in the sex laws. I personally feel that we should wait until we have the support of psychiatrists, ministers, lawyers, and others who could testify on behalf of such an action, and who could vouch for our integrity. We do not have that professional backing at this time. Undeterred, Prescott Townsend plunged ahead. In 1958, he wrote editorials in favor of marriage equality, saying, I believe homosexual partnership must be worked at more than any other. He developed his own snowflake theory of human sexuality, advancing the idea that every human libido is unique. In the words of Cathcart's unpublished biography, what he was after was sexual liberation, freedom on a universal scale without regard to gender or sexual orientation. When he said no two are alike, he meant exactly that. How difficult it must have been for Prescott, a full-blooded Yankee, a Bostonian, and a Harvard man to resist the compelling urge to categorize. This evolving radicalism compelled Townsend to join in groundbreaking protests held in New York and Washington in 1965. In New York, they marched in front of the United Nations. In Washington, they picketed the White House. In The Other Side of Silence, John Lockery described the first widely publicized gay rights demonstrations in America. The Washington Action, with 10 participants, 7 gay men, 2 lesbians, and a straight woman friend, took place at the White House on Saturday, April 17, 1965. Its New York counterpart, with 20-odd participants, including Allen Ginsberg, Peter Orlovsky, and Prescott Townsend from Boston, on Sunday, April eighteenth. A half a decade after the first gay rights protest was counted as a success with just 10 participants, Townsend was part of a core group of activists who gathered on Christopher Street in New York on June 28, 1970. They numbered between 1 and 200 at first. As they stepped off, they must have wondered how the crowd would react. Soon, though, much of the crowd joined the marchers, and the group swelled into the thousands, following Prescott Townsend and his fellow activists. To learn more about the life and times of Prescott Townsend, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 109. We'll have links to Charles Shively's book Before Stonewall, Mark Crone's profile of Townsend and Boston spirit, and a news article about Townsend's training crews wreaking havoc on Block Island. We'll also include pictures of Prescott as a young and old man and a promotional flyer from the Barn Theater and its surrounding businesses. And be sure to listen to episode 83 on Boston's first Pride Parade which owed its radical nature in part to Townsend's influence, and was inspired by the Boston chapter of the Mattachine Society and the Demophile Center, both of which were founded by Prescott Townsend. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the Crimson Letter, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might just play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now.